and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views, reviews and stuff. And I'm just going to take a second to pause and mention the thing that I'm not going to mention, if that makes any kind of sense. Last week or so has been odd, I think it's fair to say. The death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has affected us all. Whatever we think of the monarchy, um, we may be in deep mourning, we may not care, uh, but there are many things that have happened as a result of uh, her sad passing that impact on what we do. I make no comment about Her Majesty beyond um, sending our condolences to her family and those who knew her and recognising that Again, whatever you think of the monarchy, the Queen herself does have a 70-year record of being as of much service to the country as her position would allow. Uh, and we will leave that there, because there is nothing geeky about the Queen, and this whole thing is well outside of our remit. So, with the hugest respect to Her Majesty... We're going to leave that there. And we are going to move on to another sombre thing, because somebody who was associated with geeks who has left us um, is the great, great radio astronomer, Frank Drake. Now, this is the guy who gave us the Drake equation, which I won't go into here, but basically it's a, a mathematical way of suggesting that life in the galaxies of the universe is extraordinarily likely just you know if you if you take the number of stars and imagine that only half of them have got planets and that only half those planets have got any kind of possibility of hosting life and that only half the planets that could possibly host life do and that only half the planets that do have life have intelligent life that's still because we're dealing with such big numbers a huge number of planets that have intelligent life. And yes, that is a gross oversimplification of the Drake equation, but I'm not about to get into the, the nuts and bolts of it here. Uh, Frank Drake was born on May the 28th, 1930. Uh, he left us on September the 2nd, 2022. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago now as I record this, but uh, news of his death only came across my desk uh, in the middle of this week. He started his career in radio astronomy, studying the planets in the solar system, and uh, later studying pulsars, which are stars, rapidly rotating stars that send out pulses of energy, usually radiation. Um, and uh, they're, they're kind of like lighthouses. You can use them for all kinds of things in astronomy. Um, he then expanded his interest to SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, um, beginning in 1960 with something called Project Osmo, which was an attempt at extraterrestrial communications. Um, working with Carl Sagan, uh, he helped to design the plaque on the Pioneer spacecraft, um, which was the first physical mission flown beyond the solar system. And he was part of the team that, that developed the record, the golden record, that went onto the Voyager space probes. Um, all three of those probes, uh, the Pioneer and the Voyager spacecraft, have left the solar system now for a given value of where the solar system ends. Uh, so they're on their way. And in 1974, Drake designed and implemented the Arecibo message which was a radio transmission sent from the Arecibo um, radio telescope in Puerto Rico 
which contained astronomical and biological information about Earth. Uh, he was born in Chicago and was interested in electronics and chemistry from a very early age. Uh, he went to Cornell University uh, on a Royal uh, Navy Reserve Officer Training Corps scholarship. Um, he took a BA in engineering and physics uh, and served briefly as an, an electronics officer on the heavy cruiser USS Albany. He then went to, to Harvard for postgrad from 1952 to 1955, where he took a master's of science and a PhD in astronomy. Um, he achieved huge things. Drake was a huge figure in radio astronomy and in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which he firmly believed in. Um, it's The Drake equation has been described as the second most famous equation in science after E equals MC squared. Uh, I would suggest that many people know the name of the Drake equation, but they don't actually know the formula. Uh, and I would count myself among those people. Uh, I could look it up, but I'm not going to. Um, he finally stepped down as director of the Carl Sagan Center in 2010, uh, but continued to serve on the boards of many organizations. And uh, yeah, it was it was a glittering career in something that is, I suspect, much more important than most people think. So uh, here's to you, Frank Drake. Thank you for watching the skies. And now we're going to, going to forget all of the solemnity and everything and just do a normal show. So we're going to start with our review of She-Hulk. means we are going to blow this. Spoilers. Spoilers. You have been warned. Massive spoilers for episode four of She-Hulk are about to come into your ears. There is a show that is a week old. So... If you haven't seen it yet, I'm assuming you don't care that much. But if you do want to avoid spoilers for episode four, you might want to look away now. Everybody gone? Yeah? Awesome. Okay, so She-Hook, episode four. Oh, I am still really, really enjoying this show. Still not my favourite Marvel, but as I say, that is an astonishingly high bar. Okay, so episode four. Is this not real magic? We see Wong again. Fantastic. Um, now, this is something that's becoming a bit of a running joke. When she turns to the camera and breaks the fourth wall, which is a She-Hulk thing. She's always done it. But not usually cameras because it's been in comics, but you know what I mean. She's starting to get very meta and talk about, they say, this episode, she remarks on how much everybody loves Wong. And like he's, he's Twitter armor for a week which I really enjoyed. Now, she, that can't have been a recent insert. So they were anticipating that there would be controversy about this show on Twitter. Wong is actually appearing in this episode on business because episode four introduces to us a low-rent, cheap magician called Donnie Blaze, which is how he always pronounces his name. And the one thing he can do is create the portals that the sorcerers, Doctor Strange and Wong, produced to travel. You know, you, you remember them from Endgame, those. Now, it turns out he is actually a former uh, Kamataj student, and he uses the, this one skill that he's learned. He livens up his otherwise 
fairly mediocre act by sending unwitting volunteers into other realms. Wong is unaware of this. He is chilling on his sofa watching an episode of The Sopranos when one of these unwitting volunteers literally drops through a portal into his lap. Worse, much worse. He's seen that episode of The Sopranos before and totally spoilers it for him. No spoiler horn, you see, in the Mystic Arts. They, they, Wong needs to learn. You just need to take a, a moment to pause and appreciate who exactly this character who falls into Wong is. Played by Patty Guggenheim, who is clearly having far too much fun. This is the first appearance of Madison King, who is at once my favourite and most annoying new Marvel character in the MCU. She is a permanently, just ever so slightly drunk party girl from Fort Lauderdale. And uh, she spells her name Madison with two N's, one Y, but it's not where you think. And trust me, when she says it, it's even more annoying than that. Wong clearly cannot allow this state of affairs to continue. Not only is Donnie Blaze risking all of the realms, he's also causing Wong to be spoiled for The Sopranos, which is arguably worse. He goes to see Jen and Jen slaps a cease and desist. And Madison is called as a witness to um, suggest that, yes, actually his use of this magic is a threat and a problem and so on. Uh, her appearance in court is absolutely spectacular. Where in the plot, Jen is actively dating as She-Hook because she wasn't getting any swipes as herself. So she figured the She-Hook persona might be more attractive. And turns out, yes, she gets a lot of pings. Uh, she goes on a couple of dates, takes a guy home, and the next morning, back in her Jennifer Walters form, uh, she cooks him breakfast, and he is kind of nonplussed by her Jennifer Walters form, and just leaves. Which is, A, rude, she's made breakfast, and B, what? Really? Come on. I mean, seriously? I mean, okay. I have not been in the singles market for a very, very long time. Um, I have been with the woman who is now my wife for 30, oh, no, look, a lot of years, d decades. Okay, let's not dwell on how old I actually am. So I'm not entirely clear about this, but I think if I had a one night stand with She-Hulk and I woke up the following morning to find myself with Tatiana Maslany, who is Jennifer Walters, Honestly, I don't think I'd mind. And in any case, if She-Hulk is your thing, she, she, she can do that again. Yeah, the, the change is like reversible in both directions. So what an idiot, I think is what I'm saying. What a complete fool, which actually does lean in to something that's been a bit of a theme of this show, which is men really stupid. I'm not the only person who's picked up on this theme. And yeah, there has been some discussion on the old interwebs about how this means the show is irre irredeemably radical feminist and, you know, anti-male. I, I don't buy it. I think the existence of Madison tells us that they're perfectly prepared 
to demonstrate that there are stupid women in the world as well. Although, I don't know, I think there might be hidden depths to Madison. I, I, I hope there are. In any case, there are definitely men who behave like that. So, you know, the truth is occasionally uncomfortable. But, you know, that's what mirrors are for. And we end with a process server. Yeah, somebody who serves court papers. They're quite common in America, I'm given to understand. Turning up at Jen's door disguised as some kind of parcel delivery, I think. And, you know, she recognises what he is immediately. And what she's got is a cease and desist from Tatiana, uh, played by Jamila Jamil, who we haven't seen as much of as I was expecting so far, with a suit saying she must cease and desist using the name She-Hulk, which is hilarious because, of course, she doesn't want to use the name in any case. We'll see how that pans out. We then go into the closing credits, and the post-credit scene is just Wong and Madison sitting, drinking yak milk, watching television together. I swear, if they turn this into the MCU's version of Gogglebox, I would watch that show. So, four episodes in, is it still passing muster? Well, yes, for me, it is. Uh, nice bunch of little Easter eggs, nice touches. Um, you see Jen's to-do list at one point, uh, and it includes um, work required on likeness rights for a client called Ms. Pete, which I learned in my deep dive for last week's show that uh, Ms. Pete is Megan the Stallion's real name. So that's a nice thing. Also, Tony Blazer's hype man runs a magic club called the Mystic Castle, which is clearly a reference to Los Angeles' magic castle, but more on that in a different show, possibly. Is Cornelius Willows. And Cornelius Willows is played by Leon Lamar. Leon Lamar is a hundred and four years old. A hundred and four years old and still acting in the Marvel Universe. Come on. That is brilliant. And yeah, for me, the show is still good. I haven't seen episode five yet. As I record this, I am deliberately waiting until I've recorded this before I watch it. Fun. It's really good fun. The performances are great. Its tongue is very firmly in its cheek, but it has real heart, and it's very clear that the people involved, A, understand the characters, B, like the characters, and C, are taking their roles seriously and respecting what they're doing. And I, I can't ask for more than that. I am absolutely loving it. As I say, I probably preferred Ms. Marvel. I may probably prefer the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But that's a bit like comparing apples with oranges. It's a different thing. And it's a very, very good thing indeed. Oh, now we will move on to um, our wonderful woman of science, Dr. Sally Ride. We talked a little bit about this remarkable woman at the end of last week's show, but there was not time to go into things properly. So this is the second part of our look at this wonderful woman of science. Sally Ride, in full, Sally Kristen Ride, was born on the 26th of May 1951 in Encino, California, which is well, it's basically a neighbourhood of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. So it's kind of urban, but not necessarily. Anyway, in the early days, science wasn't really that far on the radar. Uh, she actually showed great promise as a tennis player and even had aspirations to play professionally. But that went by the wayside eventually. In 1973, she took a bachelor's degree in English and physics, which is an odd combination by British standards, but I think much more common over there. Uh, so that, that was from Stanford University. And for the next few years, at least as far as I can find, her career goes a little bit dark. She 
seems to have stayed in academia. And by 1978, she was a doctoral candidate and teaching assistant in laser physics at Stanford. So it would seem that she stuck around and maybe moved into the postdoc PhD program and was you know, sort of teaching to pay her way through college. It was at that point in 1978 that she was selected by NASA to be one of six women to be taken into the astronaut corps. These were the first women officially to become NASA astronaut candidates. That is not to diminish the work done and the lessons learned from Wally Funk and the Mercury 13, but they were always private candidates. They were never officially part of NASA, although it seems that they were led to believe that, in fact, they were. But nevertheless, that is history. And we may come back, actually, to the Mercury 13 at some point. But Sally Ride, uh, she went on to complete her PhD, taking a uh, PhD in astrophysics uh, in 1979. And also in 1979, she completed her NASA training. This leads me to think that that was a pretty busy year. Uh, she also took a pilot's license, which you have to do if you're going to be an astronaut. Uh, and she became eligible for assignment to the space shuttle as a mission specialist. So, as you know, because we talked about it last week, on June the 18th, 1983, she became the first American woman in space. She flew again in October 1984, and on that expedition, uh, another woman was also aboard the space shuttle, um, a childhood friend of Sally Rise called uh, Catherine Sullivan, who became the first American woman to walk in space. Again, the Soviets beat the Americans to that milestone. Ride would probably have gone into space at least one more time. She was actually training to participate in a third shuttle mission, in 1986, when obviously the Challenger explosion happened and the shuttle was grounded for a little over two years. Now, Ride served on the presidential commission that was appointed by Ronald Reagan to investigate the Challenger catastrophe. And she also returned to do the same thing when there was another commission to investigate the in-flight breakup of Orbiter Columbia in February 2003. I can't believe that was 2003. Seems like five minutes ago. She got married in 1982 um, and divorced in 1987, uh, the same year as she resigned from NASA. And in 1989, she became a professor of physics at the University of California, San Diego. And in that capacity, she also served as the director of the California Space Institute at the University of California, San Diego, uh, up until 1996. She became really a sort of space advocate, a space communicator. In, between 1999 and 2000, she was an executive at Space.com, which is a website that I use in the preparation of this show quite often. Uh, uh, she was particularly involved in the astronomy and technology content. And throughout the 1990s, Ride was a figurehead, uh, initiating and leading a huge number of programmes and organisations that were designed to foster the teaching of science, uh, and particularly in uh, supporting uh, schoolgirls' interest in science 
technology, engineering and mathematics. Uh, she also wrote or collaborated on, might be a, perhaps a, a, a better way of putting it, a number of children's books about space exploration, which I've been unable to track down, but they are out there. Um, and this, this was all about talking about her personal experience in space and, and as an astronaut. And for me, it is her work in sort of communicating science and being an advocate for space and inspiring people to take up careers and to pursue careers in this area that makes her the wonderful woman of science that she is. It was Ride, incidentally, who came up with uh, NASA's EarthCam project, which is a project designed to let middle school students take pictures of Earth using a camera based on the International Space Station. Uh, students can then study the pictures and you know, there's all kinds of applications for that. I mean, first of all, there's just the, I took a picture from space, how cool is that? Kind of thing. But there are obviously also applications for teaching geography, for teaching all kinds of science, uh, for teaching history, because you can actually see the places where things are supposed to have happened. And she dedicated really the rest of her life to that. Uh, she was, uh, as part of this work and also just in recognition of her pioneering work as an astronaut in her own right, uh, she was inducted to the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 2003. But as I say, the bulk of her post-NASA career was spent really being a role model and a teacher, sort of a walking, talking demonstration that being an astronaut is something that you can achieve, which is powerful, really powerful. Particularly, I mean, the reason we do these wonderful women in science slots is because there is still this view that science is not a thing that girls like. And Sally Ryder was like, yeah, yeah, we do. Some of us do. Absolutely, we do. And we can achieve and have great careers in science. And that's a powerful thing to show people. If you can see it, you can be it. And it, that really does matter. And she did that all the way up to her death on July the 23rd, 2012. Um, she was taken from us by cancer, as so many people are. And I, I really am saddened, not just because she died too young, but for all selfishly, for all the things that she didn't do, all the people that she didn't get a chance to inspire, because she really was. Uh, I, I've, I've heard her speak, um, not in person, sadly, uh, but I've, se I've heard her speak. I've, I've seen speeches that she's given. She was truly inspirational. And yeah, OK, she didn't invent anything amazing. She didn't develop a new technique for space walks or a cure for anything. Or, you know, she wasn't an engineer or a designer. She, did, she didn't discover a planet or, 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 or come up with a new theory of reality. That's not all that science is about. What Sally Ryden embodies for me is the sheer joy of discovery and of learning and of absolutely refusing to settle for what people say you can have and just, you know what, I'm going for it. It's a powerful example. And, you know, she must have experienced all kinds of obstacles that we'll never know about. She never made a big thing, for example, of the fact that she was gay, but she was. And, you know, if you were around in the 80s, you know what the homophobia was like. So, you know, was she necessarily as out as some people would have liked her to have been? Probably not, actually. But she also didn't keep it a secret. So 
she was there as a as an example of yeah of you know somebody from the LGBTQ plus community out there and making achievements and doing stuff. And I, I almost didn't mention the fact that she was gay, actually, but I, I, th- I, th- I do think it's important to acknowledge it because she was a trailblazer there as well. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is Sally Ride, first American woman in space, but so, so much more than that. If you want a little bit more information about her actual NASA career, that's in last week's show. So you can always go back and check that out uh, if you just go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Uh, Click on the blog thing and scroll down to find last week's edition, which is called Diverted by Diversity, I think. Uh, And of course, the show notes for this show are available in the same place. Just click on the blog button on the homepage of the Destination Venus website and scroll down until you find this edition, which, as I record this segment, doesn't have a title, but it is actually episode 67. So, yeah. Anyway, on with the next thing, which I suppose ought to be... So we haven't talked about space for a while and there has been quite a lot going on. None of it major, really, I guess. Uh, A few days ago, uh, well, end of last week, really, if you listen to this on the day it drops, there was a multi-engine test of the SpaceX Starship system, which was successful. Uh, Video in the show notes, if I remember to put it in, it's not actually that spectacular. All you see is there's a rocket standing there and then its engines go off and because it's Texas... There's then just everywhere, and you can't see a damn thing. Apparently, the uh, engine test did start a small fire among the grass around the launch pad, because of course it did. And on the subject of billionaires in space, just yesterday as I record this, so Monday the 12th of September, one of Jeff Bezos's ridiculously phallic New Shepard's rockets was forced to abort. Uh, the rocket lost propulsion during ascent, and the Crew capsule was therefore ejected and returned to Earth safely with no injuries to anyone. This kind of thing happens. And it's a testament, actually, to the safety of the system that that kind of thing can happen and, yeah, nobody gets hurt. Bummer for all concerned, but, you know, these things happen. I'm not even actually going to take the opportunity to rag on Bezos, much as I dislike him. It's a further demonstration that Blue Origin is quite a long way behind SpaceX in the whole space race thing. But hey! He's ahead of Virgin Galactic, so he's probably still pleased. Actually, potentially important space news, we do have some new dates for the launch of Artemis 1. September has now been pretty much ruled out. The earliest possible date is going to be the September the 27th. Um, It's quite a short launch window. Uh, It opens at 11.37am Eastern Standard Time, and they've got 70 minutes to get the thing in the air from that point. Now, if they do launch in that window, uh, the Orion spacecraft will splash down in the Pacific Ocean on November the 5th. Uh, The backup date for that, if they don't manage to go on September the 27th, is October the 2nd. Now, that would give them a a slightly longer window, 109 minutes, opening at 2.52pm Eastern Standard, uh, which would make them splash down on November the 11th. Uh, NASA has said that technicians have completed Uh, replacing the seals on two of the liquid hydrogen lines and reconnected them to the core of the rocket motor. Uh, They'll be testing those seals at ambient temperatures this week uh, and then running a uh, cryogenic tanking test next week. That's where they load the um, 
liquid hydrogen fuel into the rocket and everything gets very cold indeed, which can have an effect on the seals uh, and can cause leaks. So that's obviously something they need to check out. Now, that's actually good news as far as I'm concerned. I was not expecting a launch before mid-October at the earliest. That said, this is still a prototype craft. This is a design that has never flown before. They are going to be incredibly cautious about the condition of the stuff before they launch. So um, we continue to watch this space. And although that has been a very short report, we will move on in a second once we've just very quickly gone over what there is to see in the night sky right now. And on the eastern horizon, if you look in the early evening, you will see Jupiter and Saturn. They're going to look quite bright. Saturn will be rising later than Jupiter. And they're both spectacular planets to look at. I've said this before, but there is something amazing about seeing, particularly, I think, Saturn's rings with your own eyes. But looking at Jupiter 2, where you can see the stripes, I don't think the red spot is visible at the moment, but just seeing the stripes of the planet with your own eyes is kind of amazing. And you're then just seeing the dots of light, the very bright dots of light visible through the telescope that are the four Galilean moons. You don't need a huge amount of magnification for this. You just need to be able to get it out of a halfway decent set of binoculars. A tripod really helps. But if you're just holding binoculars up to your eyes, you'll see it. If you've got a telescope, then point it at the sky. As I say, looking at the planets of the solar system is one of the finest things you can do from your back garden or other open space if you're not lucky enough to have a back garden. And I think that's probably it for space. Okay, so we have had the Disney D23 event and there have been a number of announcements that are of interest to geeky souls like ourselves. Maybe we'll start with Werewolf by Night, which got itself a trailer. And in many ways, not a moment too soon because it's actually out on October the 7th, which is not that long, less than a month as I sit here recording. It's a Halloween special. It's going to feature Man-Thing. And yeah, all the chuckling about giant size man thing you can you can do right now because goodness knows I did. Uh, it looks as though well, it, it's it's going to be played for laughs almost. It's looking like a comedy type thing. Now I'm not sure about that. I like Werewolf by Night as a comic. It started as a, a sort of 70s um, horror comic under the comic code, so you know it was occasionally quite tame, but it's grown into something more than that. The most recent series of Werewolf by Night in the comics was um, you know, sort of steeped in at least an attempt to get some Native American folklore into there. So it, I hope they don't screw this one up. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. And, and let's be honest, after Thor, Love and Thunder, it ain't going to be the worst thing Marvel's ever done. So, you know, there's that. So coming in October, if you've got Disney Plus, uh, maybe have a little look at that. And speaking of things they've announced for Disney Plus, Secret Invasion is coming. This was announced a while ago uh, and led a couple of spectacularly well-informed uh, internet news sites to speculate, could Marvel's Secret Invasion be based on the comic series of the same name? Well, of course it could. Goodness sake. Uh, what we have now is a trailer featuring the brilliant Samuel L. Jackson. 
And I've got to be honest, it's making the whole idea look pretty good. Now, Secret Invasion, I've mentioned on the show before, because bits of it, at least, were filmed in Halifax, specifically the Peace Hall and I think the surrounding streets, uh, which are standing in for Russia, because filming in Russia might be difficult now for reasons. Uh, it's a good trailer. There's lots of action, lots of suspense. Um, we are seeing the scrolls, um, who are the secret invasion in question. If you saw Captain Marvel, you know who the scrolls are. They are shape-changing aliens, and as such, you don't know who, who is one. They, they can look like anybody, which is, you know, the, the, the role of the scroll in the Marvel Universe is to be that potential threat that you never see coming. Uh, other stars are going to be uh, arriving. Uh, Don Cheadle is making an appearance. Um, Kingsley Ben Adair is making a an appearance. Kirby Smulders is. Uh, and Mother of Dragons herself, Emilia Clark, is going to be there, as is National Treasure Olivia Coleman. That is one heck of a cast. So I have to say, my hopes for this are quite high. This is the sort of thing that Marvel does well. It's action. It's Nick Fury. It's the potential to be really high octane stuff and i am absolutely here for it the trailer looks amazing uh it, it's embedded in the show notes or you can go to youtube or you can see it in any number of marvel news sites and if you haven't seen it already i really do recommend you check it out this looks like a proper return to form for big action from marvel which as previously stated after thor love and thunder they kind of need Oh, and if anyone's wondering, this isn't a side, this isn't part of D23, but if anyone's wondering why I haven't said anything about Thor, Love and Thunder, having now seen the first half of it, I didn't sit through the whole thing, I have to say that I'm going to take my grandma's advice, which was, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. It would make my review of Thor, Love and Thunder, gosh, I like Natalie Portman, and that's not really a review. So, yeah, draw your own conclusions from that. Anyway, D23, what else happened? There were a couple of armor-related announcements. Um, we no trailer yet for Armor Wars, uh, for which Don Cheadle will be making a return to the Marvel screen. It's actually going to be set up by Secret Invasion, so presumably Cheadle's involvement in Secret Invasion, or Rhodey's involvement in Secret Inva Invasion, is going to cause Rhodey to take take back the armor and do some stuff in other armor-related news, because that's that's all we've got. For for Armor Wars, that and a logo, which if you're really desperate to see it, you can see in the show notes. But it, it's the words Armor Wars in a font. It's not that exciting. Uh, more exciting, to me at least, is that we've got a villain for the Ironheart series. Uh, we know who Ironheart's going to be. Ironheart will be Dominique Thorne, uh, who will presumably be Riri Williams, because that's who Ironheart is. Uh, if you don't know Riri, I've talked about Riri before. Riri was the super, super genius kid, uh, teenager, who made her own Iron Man armor and then went and showed it to Tony Stark and got taken under Tony's wing, much in the way Peter Parker was in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That didn't happen in the comics. But in the comics, Riri was very much taken under Tony's wing, uh, to the point that when Tony died for a bit, he got better. His disembodied consciousness, his digital disembodied consciousness, uh, was installed into Riri's Iron Man suit because although she's a fantastic engineer, she's terrible at coding, so she couldn't really program her own. I am really looking forward to Dominic Thorne uh, in that role. And we now know that she will be facing off against a magic user called The Hood. 
he's going to be played by a guy called Anthony Ramos, who I know absolutely nothing about, although apparently some people are quite excited about it. Now, okay, I'm guessing he's famous. The only credit I'm aware of is uh, something called In the Heights, and I don't know what that is. So, yeah, Uh, as I had to with Megan the Stallion last week, I'm just going to have to plead complete ignorance on this because I'm old and out of touch with the kids. Although not so out of touch that I can use the term the kids ironically, because, yeah, I know nobody says that. Don't write it. We are hopefully going to get more information about Ironheart soon because I'm tired of waiting, frankly. I want more. I want more. Ironheart, Riri Williams, fantastic character, massive, massive fan of the comics. So seeing her on the screen is something I am very much looking forward to. Now, there are other stuff. We've got a director for the Fantastic Four movie, which I will not care about until we know who the Fantastic Four are going to be. Sorry. Uh, We've got a bit of controversy and I'm, this is another one of those I find difficult. Uh, and no, I'm not talking about the fact that the Little Mermaid's going to be black. Um, I don't care. It's a mermaid. They don't exist. Uh, if you can have white mermaids, you can presumably have black mermaids. I, I, Africa has a coastline. I, I don't understand. So, yeah, there's that. Um, no, the, the, the controversy I want to address is the new Captain America movie, because it's disappointing. I mean, first of all, this should be brilliant. What a landmark. Sam Wilson, played by Anthony Mackie, and brilliantly played by Anthony Mackie so far, is now Captain America. We have a canonical, live-action, black Captain America. If we're talking about representation, come on! I am very, very much here for it, and I really, really, really am looking forward to seeing this film. But the internet is not happy, or at least sections of it aren't, and I can see why. I'm cautious in my condemnation of this, uh, but I am also realistic in my acknowledgement that stuff like this keeps happening, and it really shouldn't. So, what's the controversy? Well, it's called Captain America, The New World Order, which, on the face of it, is fine. It's a, the, the world is changing. There's a new order in the world. Post-Snap, post-Captain America, well, post-Steve Rogers, post-Endgame, post-Thanos, post-the events in Captain America and the Winter Soldier. New order is arising. And fine, you know, I'm sure that was the intent when they called it that. Sure it was. I am sure that they had no ill intention at all. But it is unfortunate that... The New World Order is also a anti-Semitic conspiracy, which states that the Jews are running the world in secret, possibly alongside lizard aliens. And, you know, a certain section of society talks about the New World Order. They are talking about a, a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, which isn't happening. but has been the basis for quite a lot of anti-Semitic hate crime in many countries over several years. As a Gentile, it is very easy for me to sit here and say, well, yes, but that's not what this is referring to. That's not what this means. It's okay for Marvel to use that for the reasons I previously stated. They're talking about the new order in the Marvel universe now that the Avengers have gone. Yeah, 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 I can do that as a Gentile. I'm not gonna, though. 
because can't keep doing this. And pop culture does it a lot. We have characters with names that refer to particular things um, that are culturally insensitive, shall we say. Um, we have storylines which treat people from particular groups in stereotypical ways. And we can also, oh, it's just a story, it doesn't matter, but it, it does. It does. Now, I'm not somebody who's going to look at the, uh, the movie hoardings and see the title Captain America New World Order and say, I know what they really mean. They really mean the Jews. That's not me. But there are people out there who will do exactly that, who will read into the fact that this film is called Captain America New World Order. And they will say that, yeah, oh, yeah, the villains are such and such. But really, it's the Jews. And we've got to stop giving these people encouragement. It's a movie title. It didn't have to be that. They could have called it Captain America Brave New World. They could have called it Captain America The Rise of Sam Wilson. They could have called it Captain America Flies. They could have called it Bob. They didn't need to call it Captain America Brave New World. And do you know what? Some of you might be sitting there going, well, I didn't know that that was a code word for that. I didn't know that people thought that the Brave New World was a, a, an anti was a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. I didn't know it was anti-Semitic. Maybe the people who called the movie that didn't know that. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did, though, because I simply refuse to believe that there was nobody at Marvel Studios who either wasn't Jewish or had a Jewish friend. Because I don't have that many Jewish friends. I, I live in Harrogate, not that big of a Jewish community. But I've spoken to a couple of Jewish friends and their immediate reaction was, they're calling it what now? Oh, brilliant. Well, thanks for that. Because, you know, they know it's going to get brought up. It's going to get thrown at them. So if you seriously want me to believe that nobody took Kevin Feige to one side and said, do you know what, Kev? Maybe call it something different. I'm afraid that's stretching credibility further than the plot of Thor, Love and Thunder. I say plot. You know what I mean. That, I'm afraid, kind of suggests that Marvel knew that there was just a whiff of anti-Semitism in the title of their Captain America film, and they didn't care. And I've got a problem with that. Sorry, I do. Part of my problem is that it throws a shadow over Anthony Mackie going to the big screen as Captain America. and. I don't think he deserves that. I thought, think he deserves to be trumpeted from the top of skyscrapers. This is a great thing that is happening. I've rubbed a bit of the shine off. And they should be, if, if nothing else, they should just be better at marketing than that. Because for goodness sake, it, that's not hard. Don't put anti-Semitism into the titles of your movies. I mean, that must be like one of the first things they teach you in marketing school. There is, of course, still time to change it, except if they do that now, they, they will be acknowledging they made a mistake. And Marvel ain't that good at that. So I will see. Am I mad enough about it to not go and see the movie? Uh, probably not. And I kind of hate myself a little bit for that. Maybe, as my protest, I will not see it in the cinemas. But of course, that will make some people say, oh, Captain America with a black guy in it didn't do as well, did it? And, you know, there's a section of, of fandom that we don't want to give that stick to either. So I don't know. It's a tough. I hate it when they do this. And I hate that I'm talking about this again. I'm going to file it under something to think about and move on because it's just so exhausting.
So I'm going to move on to something else that mildly irritated me, but I'm also weirdly excited about, which is, I don't know, I guess Conflicted is now my default position on everything MCU. They have announced the lineup for the live action Thunderbolts team. Now, the Thunderbolts is one of Marvel's lesser known teams. I think initially they were put together by uh, General Thunderbolt Ross, hence the name, although uh, Thunderbolt Ross is dead in the MCU now, so uh, presumably their origin story is going to be slightly different. My guess would be that they're, they're going to be named that in tribute to him. That would be that would be how I'd do it if I was in charge of the MCU, so that's probably not how they're going to do it, but there you go. So we've got the lineup. They are Bucky Barnes, once more played by Sebastian Stan, uh, the Winter Soldier, the White Wolf, he is joining up with Yelena Belova, uh, played by Forrest Pugh. And oh, the Red Guardian, played by David Harbour. Uh, Taskmaster, played by Olga Kirilenko. I'm going to guess my Russian really needs a bit of a spruce up. Uh, Ghost, played by Hannah John Kamen. And the US Agent, played by uh, Wyatt Russell, who still looks weird in the helmet. I'm sorry, Wyatt, but you do. Uh, and Valentina, Julia Lewis-Dreyfus. Um, now, the Thunderbolts are kind of, I guess, the closest DC equivalent would be the Suicide Squad, but they're not quite like the Suicide Squad. Uh, but they are the sort of dirty ops team that's made up of, um, shall we say, morally ambiguous characters like Taskmaster, like the US agent. Um, I actually don't think Bucky's... A, thematically i don't think bucky's a good fit unless they're going to have bucky be the kind of conscience of the team the hang on a second you can't do that part of the team because last time we saw bucky he had come to terms in falcon and the winter soldier with you know his past who he is who he was what he's done and you know he made some compromises but he had found himself and he'd found his goodness if you like and he'd moved away from what he was when he was the winter soldier uh, i notice from the art they've got in the photograph from the d23 announcement the d23 panel uh doesn't look as though there's still a red star on bookie's arm i think that is perhaps symbolizing that he has moved on from the winter soldier part of his history uh, into being something else Interesting to know what code name they'd use for him. He's just referred to in, D in the D23 announcement as Bucky Barnes. Uh, so maybe they're going to give him the Nomad persona that he had for a while in the comics that he took from Cap. Um, I don't know. Be interesting. Now, there is almost nothing comics accurate about this team. And I, some people are annoyed about that over in Geekland. I'm not, I don't think, because... Nobody in the live action community, the live action watching community, really cares. And what matters, therefore, is that Thunderbolts is the name that Marvel has for a team. They were putting together a team show. They called it the Thunderbolts. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that any more than I have a problem with Netflix calling a show Defenders when it's Luke Cage, Iron Fist, uh, Jessica Jones and Daredevil. You know, I, I, that was a. That's not the Defenders team from the comics, is all I'm saying. I don't care. It doesn't matter. What matters is, will it be good? Well, uh, some of the people in this team 
I, I'm not that familiar with the oeuvre, but Sebastian Stan has been good in everything I've seen him in. Florence Pugh is Florence Pugh and in my eyes can do absolutely no wrong. David Harbour. The only thing David Harbour's done that I've seen that I didn't like was Hellboy. And that was nothing to do with him. That was much more to do with the fact that I wanted it to be Ron Perlman in uh, Jeanne del Toro movie. And it wasn't and could never be that. And, you know, I, w I was minded to dislike the movie from the start. So, yeah, that's a strong cast. I and mean, I, I only know Wyatt Russell from The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but actually his portrayal of, of Captain John Walker uh, in that was excellent. He got the motivation and the conflict in the character. John Walker thinks of himself as a good man and a good soldier. And so, you know, he brought that to his performance and it worked and that's a hard thing to do i think so yeah i was very impressed with that so yeah four of the seven are actors whose work i really admire so i've got my fingers crossed for thunderbolts if it's well written it will be great because i think it will definitely be well performed so if it's well written i think we're on to a winner and you know, there was other stuff. Um, Disney's going to do some stuff with Disney World, and I really don't care. That's not my, that's not my thing. Um, so I think we'll we'll leave the discussion of D twenty three there for now. I'm sure there will be more announcements about various things over the following few weeks. And uh, obviously, Werewolf by Night is dropping in three weeks' time. So you know, there'll be a review of that once it's available. But for now, it is time to move on. I think we have time to just look at a couple of comics recommendations. And I have to say, there is a lot of good stuff out this week. We're going to start with a horror title uh, from the Bone Orchard mythos called 10,000 Black Feathers. Written and drawn by Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sarantino, with colours from Dave Stewart and uh, letters by Steve Wands. This is a brilliantly subtle title. It's a dual timeline story. We have what I presume to be the present, which is illustrated by Lemire, and the childhood of our central character, illustrated by yeah, Andrea Sorrentino. You know instantly that something bad happened because the past is a bright, clear, crisp place, and the present is not illustrated in Lemire's beautifully dark style. It's wonderful, and I have to say, actually, the colours from Dave Stewart are just, just sublime. He uses two completely different palettes and it works perfectly. Now what we have here is our central character, a young woman called Trish, who's returning to, well, it's unclear actually whether it's her childhood home exactly. It is certainly the home of her childhood friend. Welcomed with open arms by Terry, who is the mother of the aforementioned childhood friend, we can see from what Terry looks like now to what Terry looked like in the past, Terry has had a hard life. We don't know yet, but we can infer that this is because something happened to her daughter, Jackie. We don't know what, but something. And what we have in the whole of issue one is flashes back to the first meeting of Trish 
and Jackie. And we have the friendship between Trish and Jackie being established and building. And we have in the present Trish looking back in fear as well as regret, I think. The the whole mood is incredibly creepy and that the the the, the, heart, the creepiness of the modern day illustrated by Lemire is in stark contrast to the joy and the optimism and the brightness of the past. It's wonderfully, wonderfully, beautifully done. We don't know what happened. It's Lemire, so something weird. Uh, there's a suggestion of some kind of supernatural creature and there are falling, falling black feathers. We don't know what any of this is about yet. What we have in issue one is just world building and it's sublime and intricate and I love it. So roll on issue two is all I can say. Uh, that is uh, the Bone Orchard Mythos 10,000 Black Feathers from Image Comics written uh, by Jeff Lemire and Andrew Sorrento. Art by Jeff Lemire and Andrew Sorrentino. Uh, colours by Dave Stewart. It is just... 375 if you didn't pre-order it from Destination Venus, and it is worth easily double that. It's just a, a, an absolute work of art, as so much of Lemire's horror, horror stuff is. If you're looking for a bit more action, then I would point you at the 06 Protocol from Aftershock. This is uh, a kind of super soldier kind of deal, but not... No, that's, that's wrong, actually. Strike that. Uh, written by Lee Turner, uh, illustrated by... Cliff Richards, not that one, uh, coloured by Matt Herms, with letters by Cardinal Ray. This is a story of a very happy family. Uh, Mum, dad, daughter. And then one night, their home is invaded by a crazed gunman. He is killed uh, by what the mother thinks is a lucky shot from her. America after all that you don't need to suspend your disbelief to believe that they would have handguns but the father a guy called Faust is killed something is not right why was their home randomly selected by an apparently random crazed gunman how did they have the skills as just a suburban husband and wife to fight this guy off and how did Kat, the mother a woman who has been to the gun range a few times, make the impossible shot that took out the gunman who killed her husband and threatened her family. Doesn't stack up. There are answers to be had in this story. There's obviously a conspiracy going on somewhere. Yes, the government is involved. Yes, Cat's now deceased husband is not, was not, everything he seemed. And neither, neither is she. The secret behind their relationship is shocking and now threatens Kat's entire family. Honestly, this is a top-notch thriller. Uh, the, the conspiracy is nicely drawn. The, the characters are suitably evil when they need to be, and also just casually, offhandly evil. It's brilliantly done. Uh, conspiracies are often hard to pull off in stories because... They can feel just too ridiculous. This, this works. I'm, I'm a really big fan of this one. Uh, that is the 06 Protocol. Uh, it's out from Aftershock. It is 
480 if you didn't pre-order it at Destination Venus, 450 if you did. And uh, again, I would not be recommending it if I did not think it was worth the price of entry. It is a sterling, sterling piece of work. And I am just going to very quickly, I'm going to do two, I'm going to very quickly squeeze in one more. Batman versus Robin, issue one, dropped this week. Uh, it's father versus son as Damian Wayne, Bruce Wayne's biological son and the current Robin, goes apparently rogue, attacks Batman, trying to depose him and drive him out of the mantle of the bat so that Damien can take over. What has happened to turn Damien against his family? Read and find out. It's really good. And there is a shocking, if not necessarily too surprising return for a much beloved character who's been gone for far too long. No spoilers, but they are on the cover. Written by Mark Wade. Illustrated by Mahmoud Asrar, uh, coloured by Jody Belair and lettered by Steve Wands. This is Batman vs. Robin, issue one. Out this week from DC Comics. 5.75 if you didn't pre-order it, 4.99 if you did. And again, it's just great, great fun. And it's going to change the Bat universe for quite some time to come, I think. This is like a big event in the Batman universe. That is all we have time for this week. I'm going to squeeze in uh, just a little bit for the Geek Community Notice Board. Coming this Sunday, the 18th of September, at Major Tom's Social, it is the original and best Geek Pub Quiz, hosted by Steve, Helen and Chris, and featuring this month around that I wrote. So there you go. Always a great night, always great prizes. I will just point out that the uh, Geeky Movie Quiz is on Thursday the 29th of September as well. Don't miss that. Again, always a great night. Always great prizes. And I also want to give a shout out to our friends at The Secret Lair. Uh, lots of stuff happening through the week there. Uh, this week, I particularly want to focus on their Friday Night Magic sessions. You are a fan of the Magic the Gathering card game, and I know a lot of you are. And you're looking for somewhere to play Friday Night Magic at The Secret Lair uh, down on Hornbeam Park. Is the place for you. Join other Magic the Gathering enthusiasts for what is a cracking night of Magic the Gathering. I'm vamping slightly. I've only ever played one game of Magic and I was terrible at it. Check out the social medias of the Geek Pool Quiz and the Secret Lair for more details of all of that. And once again, I cannot recommend either event highly enough. If you have a geeky event that you would like to promote in Harrogate or elsewhere, we do have reached beyond Harrogate through our podcast. Or if you have any suggestions or, or requests or comments or complaints about anything we've covered on the show so far, Please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk or you can hit us up on our social medias. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You'll find us. Show notes should be up at www.destinationvenus.co.uk by the time you hear this. If they're not, they'll be along shortly. Just click on the blog section and look for Geeking with Destination Venus episode 67. We will be back next week with more news, views and reviews from the whole world of geek. Uh, hopefully some more positive news about Artemis will be forthcoming by then. But for now, all that remains is for me to tell you that this has been Geeking with Destination Venus, a production of Venus Rising Media, proudly made and engineered here in sunny, sunny Harrogate. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care of yourself, take care of everybody else, and above all else, Stay safe, 
stay sane, stay geeky, and be kind to people, because you never know how long you've got.